Well, I wonder if um, some Sundays after church you have had the same experience that Anne and I sometimes have. <laughs> You're hungry and you decide to go somewhere to eat. And the conversation in the car, before you get in the car, goes something like this. Where do you want to go? Either one or the other asks. I don't care, says your spouse. So what are you in the mood for? Oh, it really doesn't matter to me, uh, says the first. I'm just hungry. What do you feel like? Oh, I don't care. You pick a place. <laughs> well, we could have pizza. Well, we could. But we had that last time we went out. And if the kids are with you or another couple is involved, all of that simply is multiplied. So the conversation goes until you finally agree on a place. But all's not settled. Things could change on the way. Yet at some point, somehow, you arrive at some restaurant and you wait to be seated. You get your menu and you're faced again with having to make a choice. By now, may not actually be starving, though you say you are, and there's so many good things to eat, they all sound so good, and you go back and forth in your own mind, narrowing things down, and before you quite get to the place where you've made up your mind, the waiter comes over, but one of you's not ready yet. That's okay, he says, I'll give you a few more moments, and probably he disappears down a rabbit hole where eventually... You come to the conclusion that he and Alice are at the Mad Hatter's house enjoying tea together. Your spouse has finally made up their mind, and wow, you have narrowed down your choice to just two possibilities, and they may be as different as a simple breakfast or a nine-course steak dinner, but you finally land on something. And eventually, the growling of your stomach alerts the wait staff of the long-forgotten and abandoned table, and your waiter finally appears again, and you marvel with the fact that he looks hardly any older than he was last century when you last saw him, when you first sat down. And your order is placed, and you wait, and within uh, the year, your food comes, you eat, and you're satisfied, but unfortunately, you're not any wiser or you will go through that same ritual again at some future point. Now that's a rather silly but familiar dilemma that we often face, illustrating to some small degree the difficulty we sometimes have of making choices, especially when there are a number of good things to choose from. And maybe the most difficult part of that process is that final choice, you know, between those two good things that are set before you, between that simple breakfast and that steak dinner, and you feel, don't you just torn between the two? You know, the Apostle Paul himself found himself in a place where he too was torn between two good things, so they were much more serious than a mere meal. Paul really didn't have a choice in the matter, though he talked as though he had, but the decision really would be made by others. Yet in his mind, Paul wrestled with which of those two things he would choose if it were left up to him. And he records for us in his letter to his friends, the Philippians, his thought processes as he struggled with the things which were set before him. And from his experience, we may learn a great deal so that if we were to ever find ourselves in the same place, we might, and we just might, find ourselves in that same place.
will be wiser for having read of Paul's experience. When we find that experience, uh, and Paul's thoughts about it in the book of Philippians chapter 1. And so I'd invite you to join me there in your Bible, Philippians chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 18 and following. And of course, Jim will get that up on the screen on either side of us. Now, when we come to our text today, we find Paul in prison, not because he has done anything immoral or deserving of prison, but because he was faithful to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. And his enemies have managed to get him arrested on some pretext, and Paul was awaiting his sentence, which, uh, when given, will either free him or put him to death. Now, we might imagine in that situation that Paul would be rather glum, but that's not the case at all, as we see. Uh, Picking up our story in the middle of 18, where we read this, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So if you remember uh, from the last time that we were here in chapter 1, Paul already was rejoicing because Christ was being preached for all kinds of reasons, yes, for both good and bad reasons. But the good news was going forth, and because of that, that made Paul glad. And he was determined to stay that way. So verse 19 tells us why he would continue to rejoice. We read, Therefore I know through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, we're going to see that uh, what Paul means by deliverance here is not what you and I might normally think it means. It really means something very different, very radically different. Uh, We would naturally assume that he's referring to getting out of jail, but he has something else in mind, which involves that choice between the two good things that we talked about just a little bit ago. But before we look at that, we, uh, we need to see the two things that Paul identifies as bringing about his deliverance. And one of them is divine, and the other one, human. So Paul, in addressing the Philippians first, says this. He knows that their prayers will make a difference. Uh, this, this really is a rather astonishing statement when you see that the prayers of the Philippians, these things that these people in Philippi were praying for Paul, were placed right alongside of the work of the Holy Spirit. See, God's going to work in Paul's life through the Spirit. God's going to do what God will do in Paul's life, and that's not dependent on anyone else, not you or me or the Philippians or anyone else. And yet God has so ordered creation that our prayers matter. They change things in this life, and they alter eternity. I don't think I can say enough about the importance of our prayers. In a situation like this, we're, we're not praying. I'm just you understand this. We're not praying to make God move or to change God's mind. God's going to do what's right regardless of our prayers. What we're doing is coming alongside of him as he works. So maybe you can think of it this way. See, you can bless a person. 
you can change a person. You, you can change a situation by, by some action on your part, by something that you do for them. And prayer, at least some of our prayers, for there really are many different kinds of prayers, is a thing that we do for someone else. You understand that. When you pray for someone, it's something you do for them. And it might seem small to us. I mean, really, it's just words after all, isn't it? And sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's nothing more than a kind of a, of a groaning because we don't know what we ought to say. But it's directed towards the infinite majesty who is our God. And it takes on a power disproportionate to the words or the one who's praying. It's so important that God sets it next to the work of the Holy Spirit, the prayers of the Philippians and the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, those prayers that you pray for someone, maybe we can think of it as they touch that person. They make a difference in them and in their lives. It makes a difference in them and their situation other than besides what God himself is doing. So it's important. Set right next to the work of the Spirit, which brings us to the other thing, which Paul identifies as bringing about his deliverance. Paul talks about God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, or as the old NIV translation says, the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. See, Paul understood this. He understood that what was needed was not in him. It would come from God through his Spirit. Now, maybe you remember an illustration I used uh, one time when I was talking about the Holy Spirit. I held up a glove, and I want you to remember a picture in that. I kind of shook that glove around, and you know, glove is just pretty flimsy, right? There's not a lot of strength. There's nothing a glove can do. It's weak and can't do anything on its own. But you take that glove and you put it on a hand, and now that glove becomes just as strong as I am. So it is with the Holy Spirit and us. God fills us with His Spirit, and we have all that we need for the task before us. I don't know, maybe the best illustrations of both of those things that Paul identifies as helping him in his deliverance is when Moses stood on top of the hill of Rephidim praying as Joshua fought the Amalekites. You remember the story, don't you? As long as Moses stood there with the staff of God raised above his head, Joshua was winning. But as the staff would drop, then the Amalekites would start winning. And so Aaron and Hur stood one on either side of him, and they supported his hands staff remained in the air, and Joshua utterly defeated them. See, when we pray for people, we're doing something like that. We're holding them up. But it's God's power that provides everything else that they need. And Paul says, that's, that's what delivers me. That's what's going to bring deliverance for me in this situation. Or maybe you could think of a, a person who's injured, you know, someone who's sick or or needs to get to the hospital where they can get some real help, and you, and you get that person and put them in your car, and you get them to a doctor who can help them. 
See, Paul was able to rejoice because he knew the Philippians were praying for him and that God had given his spirit who would strengthen him as he needed. And so he knew he would be delivered. Which brings us back to Paul's understanding of deliverance. And we discover that in verse 20. He says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, there's a lot going on here, and we're going to take it apart and briefly discuss some of what's happening. But for Paul, we're going to see what deliverance means. And what it means to him is that he will exalt Christ, and he will do so whether he lives or dies. We get a little bit of insight into this when we read verse 21, that famous declaration of Paul when he says, For me... For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, if that's true, and we we know it is, we know Paul died at some point, whether it was during this prison stay or at a later date, he died a martyr's death for the sake of Christ. If it's true, then we, we can understand what Paul means by deliverance here, that it's exalting Christ, whether he dies or whether he lives, whether he's remanded to prison. Nothing else truly matters to him but that, the glory of the one who saved him. Paul tells the Philippians and us through his letter preserved for us in the word of God that he had no doubt about this. That's what he means when he says he eagerly expects and hopes. You know, both of those terms are an expression of a confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking at all. You understand that? It's a surety and it's based on the faithfulness of God. Philippians are praying for him. The Spirit of God is given to him. And he's going to be delivered. He's going to be able to exalt Christ. He's going to be able to honor Christ whether he lives or he dies. And he he knows that. He expects that he has everything he needs. It reminds me of the confidence I had in my dad. You know, when I was young, when I was a little guy, I really thought my dad could do absolutely anything. And then when I was older, I knew that wasn't true. But I knew something about my father. I knew he would always, always try to do what is right. And at almost 87 years old now, he still does. My dad's just a man, and he can fail, but God never fails. God never fails. And we can be confident. We can know And Paul was confident that he himself would not be ashamed. That is, he's not going to fail at the end. He won't stumble. He's not going to sin. He's not going to deny Christ no no matter what happens in his life. Rather, he's going to have all of the courage that he needs. The NIV says he'll have sufficient courage. And it makes it sound almost like he'll have just enough courage, which is what it might feel like in reality. But the Greek says he'll have all courage, meaning every bit and more than he could ever need. And so Paul will 
be able to exalt Christ. Now, this is no meager thing which God is going to provide for him. It's not like a crutch or a cane or a walker that you can somehow use to hobble over the finish line. It's more like a race car or a tank. He has all the power he needs to run the race. Nothing can stop him. God will enable him to exalt Christ whatever Paul faces. In, in the body, when he says that, it just means it's with his whole being he will exalt him. He tells us he's always tried to live that way, and he wants to continue to do so, whatever the outcome of his sentencing. You know, Paul really would fit that, that wonderful description of a faithful Christian. A long obedience and saying, his whole life ever since he came to know Christ. Deliverance to Paul means being in the situation he was in, not, not getting out of prison. He wasn't planning an escape. Deliverance for him meant exalting Christ whatever came his way. We gain more insight into the inner workings of Paul's heart as we read further as he considers what lies before him. Verses 22 and following, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. You know, Paul understands. He doesn't really have a choice in the matter. But if God did say to him, if God did say, Paul, which one of these are you going to choose? Do you want to come home to be with me? Or do you want to stay and help your friends? They really could use your help. You saying, I'm not sure how I'd answer that. He says he's torn between the two. You know, it's a picture of him standing in the middle between two good people and each one of them has him by an arm. And they, and they want him to go with him this way. The other one wants him to go that way. But he can't go both. He can only go in one direction. And that's what Paul was facing. He wanted to go both ways, but he can't. It's one or the other. And if he goes home with Christ, it's gain. You understand that? And it's not just personal gain, you understand. That's not all he's talking about here. But there's this gain, this power of exalting Christ through martyrdom. Paul understood that. He understood if he died for the name of Jesus Christ, it would exalt Christ wonderfully. It would be gain for the entire faith. And yet it's personal gain too. You know, this life is strange. Stained. The next one is strong and straight, peaceful and pure, free and full, clear and clean. In this life, we look forward to seeing Jesus. In the next one, we will be with him. If he goes home with Christ, it's better. It's better by far. Then what about his friends? He loves them. 
you could be a great help to them. And so verses 25 and 26 tell us more about Paul and reveal what choice he would make if it were left up to him. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and will continue with you for all of your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting, or as we would put it, your glorying in or enjoyment of Christ Jesus will abound because of me. Paul would put his friends before himself. He would exalt Christ whatever came his way, but if the choice were his, he would stay a little while longer yet so he could help those he loved. It would be better for them You know, one of the many things that I appreciate about Jim Rayner is that whenever one of you, some one of you, moves, he's right there to help you. I, I need to tell you something just in case you don't know it. You might think that Jim really likes it, but he does not like carrying boxes or packing them up, he just as soon you stayed right where you are. <laughs> but you need help. And so he comes, and he carries the boxes. Because he loves you. Just as I do. And see, that's what Paul was willing to do for those he Help them move on to a better place in their lives. He may have been, been torn. Breakfast or a steak dinner. But in the end, he made his choice. If it were up to him, though he would rather go home, he would stay and help. That's what we see here. Confidence. That he would be delivered, able to exalt Christ no matter what came his way, knowing the prayers of those people in Philippi loved him, would help him, and God would provide him with everything that he needed. So what does all of this mean to us? What does it mean to you and I? Well, I, I think that we can say this. We can know. We can believe some things. You see, whatever our situation can see what Paul's in. We can know that whatever our situation, we can have complete confidence in God. He will use the prayers of those who love us and who are praying for us when we are going through a difficult time. And he will use the provision of his own spirit who lives inside of us and never leaves us so that we'll have all the courage that we need to face whatever comes, no matter what it is that happens to us. For if we live, we live for Christ. And we can have fruitful labor in this life. And we can help others in faith. And if we die, well, it's not a loss. It's a gain. And the best of all things 
and really that's what we ought to desire since we will then be with Christ either way in every way God has delivered us and he will deliver us that's Father, not one of us knows what the future holds for us. But you do. And we know you. And you've demonstrated your love for every single person in this room. Indeed, for every person who's ever lived. When Christ went to that cross and took our sins away. For those of us who put our trust in our faith separated. We know that nothing comes our way except by your permission. And we know that you will see us through to the end. Help us, Lord.